All right, welcome. Good morning. Good to see you all here. I'm Matthew, as Brian said, one of the pastors. Um, my high school football team played last night and lost. They went for two as the clock was winding down in the fourth quarter, and they did not convert the two-point conversion, and they lost, which is really sad. I didn't go to the game because it was freezing cold, and I'm not that committed to my high school. Um, but it made me think of a, a, a moment in my life uh, that involved high school football that was like the pinnacle, maybe, of my existence as a human being. So um, went to Liberty Center High School, uh, which we, at that time, I think still do. We prize ourselves on our football team. And I, I didn't play much, to be quite honest with you. Um, but when I did get to play, it was good. Um, and so uh, there was this moment against our cross-county rival, Wauseon High School, where they fumbled um, right before halftime, and there were like, I don't know, 10 seconds left. And so our team, we, we ran the ball 99% of the time. So we only had a few pass plays in our entire playbook. And I played wide receiver. And so that kind of wasn't great for me. Um, but so here we are. We have to pass the ball right before halftime if we want to score. Coach draws up the play. It's a pass to me. I'm like freaking out. It's like kind of like this post deep slant route. And the quarterback throws it. And it was such a good throw. I literally, I mean, all I had to do was just like do this. I don't know how it just kind of fell into my arms. Um, and I ran into the end zone. And that was like my one and only glory moment in all of high school football. But it gets better. It gets way better. So um, we're walking. This is right before halftime. We're walking out of the locker room back onto the field for the second half. And this kid walks up to me with his dad. And, and he wants to, you can tell he wants to like interact with me. But I think he got really nervous being around such a star football player um, <laughs> that he, he, he didn't say anything. But then his dad kind of came up and he said, would you sign the program? And I was like, yes, I will. Yes, I will. <laughs> Been practicing my signature for all these years for this moment. So I wrote my name with number two on there. Um, I was like, this is exactly the moment that I was made for. This football is what I was made for. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go college. I'm going to go pro. I'm going to be the hometown hero. And I was obviously delusional. <laughs> five, five, a buck fifty, maybe, soaking wet. And I was like, this is what I was made for. Not really. I've come to terms with the fact that that's not what the Lord has for me. Um, what were we made for? That's our big question today. I thought in that brief moment that that's what it was in high school. It was delusional, I know. But what were we made for? What is our destiny? What is our future? What are these 75, 80, 85 maybe if we're lucky, years of our life? What is it leading to? You ever have a moment where, again, it's silly and I was delusional, but you ever have a moment where you feel like you get a glimpse of what that is for you? where you say, this is what I was made for. I think most of us, we struggle to know how to answer that question. Or if we can answer the question, what, what are we made for? We don't know how it intersects with or how it plays into our day-to-day -day life. And I think Psalm 90 
verse 10 is probably about the most depressing passage in the whole Bible, so I thought, why don't we go ahead and start with that? Let's start with a really depressing passage. It says this, 70 is the sum of our years, 80 if we're strong, but it's nothing but trouble and toil. All right, have a great day. Let's pray. Um, it's really depressing. 70 is the sum of our years, 80 if, if we're strong, and it's nothing but trouble and toil. And I wonder if that's how we feel. I wonder if you can relate to that. I know there are days that I can. I don't think, by the way, that the author of the Psalms there is prescribing that. I don't think he's saying, yep, that's really, that's all it is. Have fun with that. I think he's describing his own experience. And I do. I wonder if it's ours, too. And so we're, we've been in the book of Philippians. We're kind of tr- trekking along with Paul as he's sitting in a Roman prison, writing a letter to some of his friends in this place called Philippi, where he had started a church years before. And Paul knew what he was made for. Paul knew his destiny. Spoiler alert, it was not high school football fame, okay? He says it in the passage that we discussed last week. So we ended with Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, which say, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. There it is, right there. And somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So what is our destiny? What's the thing that we were made for? What are these 70, 80, 90 years, if we're lucky, leading up to resurrection? That's it. Resurrection is our destiny. And I know the instinct here, because I have it too. That's far away. I don't have to think about that. That's too lofty. That's hard to wrap my mind around. It's kind of weird. It's unfamiliar. The only way to get to resurrection is to die. I don't really like thinking about that. I don't like that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage with that. But what the scriptures do, what the Bible does over and over and over again, is it, it reminds us that this life of ours is like a, that's it, and, and compared to eternity. And there's something about what is yet to come that affects how we live now. It ought to shape how we live now. See, Paul knew that his whole life was leading to this. It became his treasure, his joy. This vision of the resurrection life, of what would happen to him after he died. And he probably assumed that he was going to die. Remember, he's in prison. He's literally chained to a Roman prisoner whose job it is is to beat him every day. He's awaiting execution. He's thinking about this a lot. And so the resurrection life becomes his treasure. It consumed him. And I think it's exactly what ought to consume us. It's exactly the same vision that we ought to have for our lives. So we're going to start in verse 12. This is where we're going today, 12, 312 to 4.1. And Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, 
but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful passage. He starts and he says, not that I have already obtained all of this, or I've already arrived at my goal. He's like saying, I'm not there, right? So he ends 310 with this vision of resurrection, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says, I'm not there yet. I haven't died yet. I haven't gone to be with Jesus yet. When he says, arrived at my goal, he's using the Greek word there, teleos. Any philosophy majors in the room? Okay, smart choice. Good choice. Um, just joking. That's mean. Um, he's, th- this word teleos, it means destiny. It means your future. It means the thing that everything else is leading to. It's the study of that. And so Paul says, I haven't tasted yet of the resurrection, but yet it shapes everything about his life. It's in the future, yes, but yet it, 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 somehow it's changing how he sees the present. At the end of 12, he says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, this is a really cool passage. I'm, I'm a nerd, so I geek out at this stuff. He uses the same Greek word three times, the same verb. Okay, so he says, I haven't yet obtained it. Okay, that's the one. But I press on to take hold, second one, of that which Jesus has taken hold, third time, of me. It's really poetic. It's really astounding. It's beautiful. And what Paul is trying to say is like, guys, listen to this. It's like the gospel in one sentence. He says, we chase after, I chase after, I strain for, I reach for, I strive for, with every fiber of my being, God. Why? Because God did that for me in Jesus Christ. God did that. He reached for me. He grasped after me. He strained toward me in Jesus to rescue me. Remember, this is the guy who used to kill Christians. That was his job, was to persecute Christians. And he has this radical conversion story. And so he's well acquainted with the fact that he didn't earn it. He didn't do anything to get it, but God grabbed hold of his life. And that's what Jesus does for all of us, right? He went silently to the cross. He rose victorious over sin, death, and evil that we might know and walk with God again. And so every day, we who know Jesus, who have come to terms that we are fatally flawed, that we are broken, that we are desperately in need of rescue and salvation, we fall on our faces. God lavishes grace and forgiveness and peace upon us. We who know Jesus, we wake up every day and we strain and we strive, and we press on toward God. Why? Because he did that for us. All of our life is a response. All of our life is just us imitating what he did for us. Verse 13, but one thing I do. It's funny, he says, but one thing I do, but then he lists a couple of things. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on 
toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the imagery here is of like the Olympics, the Greco-Roman Olympics, which happened every year back in that day in this big Colosseum. There would have been one in the city of Philippi, which is where this letter is going to end up. There's also obviously one in Rome. And the main event was, you probably think like some sort of fighting to the death, right? It was a foot race. (laughs) Kind of lame, right? Anyway, um, the main event was the foot race. So the runners would literally just run from one end of the stadium to another. And the winner would be given this great prize to the cheering and the applause of tens of thousands, no doubt, of spectators. And Paul's like, following Jesus is like that. We don't walk towards Jesus, towards this resurrection life, towards eternity. We don't sort of like, yeah, I'm following Jesus. Kind of when I feel like it, when he's giving me what I want. We run. We sprint. We use every fiber of our muscle that we have to get to the prize. And the prize is resurrection. Why is resurrection the prize? Because in resurrection, we see God. And if you didn't know it, that's everything you've ever wanted, is to see God. We experience him in his fullness. We know him completely. We are shed completely of all of this brokenness and sin and decay and disease and death that is just streaming through our veins. It's all gone. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, he's thinking about resurrection life, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... When Jesus returns to set the world right, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That will happen to every single person who's ever lived. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not make-believe. It's not a fairy tale. That's what will happen when we see him we shall be like him, and that is exactly what we were made for. Do you notice what we have to do first? We have to do a couple of things. First, he says, forget what is behind. So what is Paul talking about here? He probably has in mind, based on what he's written so far in Philippians, two things. He's forgetting his life before Christ, where he was sinful, where his job, again, was to literally try to persecute and eliminate, eradicate all the Christians, Yes, I think he has that in mind, but also his accomplishments. He chooses to forget all of those things, right? Last week, we talked about his laundry list of things, right? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, a Pharisee. According to righteousness, under the law, faultless. He basically provides his entire spiritual resume, and he says, I am better on paper than every single one of you. And yet, what does he say? What does he call it? Garbage. Rubbish. Scubalon is the Greek word. It means poop. (laughs) You heard it in church. That's what that word means. He's like, it's all poop compared to knowing Jesus. So yes, he's talking about forgetting about his former life and sin, but he's also talking about forgetting all that he's accomplished, all the stuff that would make him right with God, but actually doesn't because only Jesus does. He chooses to forget it all, to put it behind him, 
And I wonder if we do the same or if we still hang on to stuff, if we still put our value and our identity and our worth in other things. If we're going to run with every fiber of our being toward this prize, we have got to forget some stuff. We got to disregard some stuff. We got to see it all as trash. And second, we strain toward what is ahead. Again, he's talking here about resurrection. And this is really hard for us, right? We, we, we get comfortable with what is here now. It gets really familiar to us. And the idea of chasing after some future life, some eternity is really difficult. How does that connect to my life now, right? Look what Paul says. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I think this is the, the key to the question, how does the resurrection affect my life now? How does that future reality make its way into the present? Okay, so keep your eyes on those who live as we do. How is Paul living in this moment? He's living with incredible joy. He's living with this amazing peace. I mean, the guy is waiting to be executed. And what is he doing? It tells us earlier in Philippians, he's leading the guards whose job it is, is to beat him. He's leading them to Christ. He's full of joy. He's writing these letters to these various churches that he's planted. He is so far beyond his circumstances. He's living in a way that made no sense in, with earthly eyes. And Paul's like, do what we do. Follow that example. This indestructible hope, this joy that's not wrecked by circumstances, that's for all of us. And here's the thing, when life gets hard and, and there's pain in our lives, and for some of you, you're gonna, you're, you think, I don't have any of that right now, awesome, praise God for that, tuck this away, because there will be a time where you will need this. Pain has this way of making us hunger most for what we were made for. It's in our pain and our suffering and our struggling that we hunger most for what we were made for. Pain brings the resurrection front and center. And that's why it's a gift. That's why we who follow Jesus, we flip pain up, up on its head. And it's not the great enemy. It's not the thing that we orient our whole lives around trying to avoid. We embrace it because it creates in us this hunger for God and for what is to come. I met this guy on campus about 15 years ago. His name was Aaron. He was sitting, I was doing the thing where I was brand new on staff. I had just finished raising support. We have to raise money to get paid because our church is broke because it's mostly college kids. So I spent a year raising money so I could get paid to do this work. And um, I was wandering around the student union trying to talk to people about their spiritual beliefs. Super nerve-wracking, didn't love it, but I was trying to be that good new staffer, right? Try to impress the pastors, just wander around on campus and talk to people. And so uh, I walk up to this guy, and I, I don't remember, I say something like, hey, can we have a conversation about God or your spiritual beliefs? 
And there's always that moment right there where you're like, is this person going to be nice? Are they going to like just blow me off? Or this is really awkward for both of us. You know, what's going to happen here? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. You, you can sit down. So I start talking to him. Long story. I'm going to just fly over big parts of this story. But he came with me to uh, a Bible study that was happening that night. And he got super involved in our church, ended up uh, rededicating his life to Jesus through it. And we became really good friends. I was sitting in a seminary class. I had moved to Kent to help plant a church. And so we weren't living in the same city. I was sitting in a seminary class, so ironic, when I got the text from his wife that he was just diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. And again, he's like 25, 24, 25 years old. And again, long story short, he moved over to Northeast Ohio to get treatment at the Cleveland Clinic where I happened to be living. So I would go visit with him about once a week and I would just talk to him. And for a while it was like, God's gonna heal me of this. It's gonna be a miraculous story and this is gonna be the way that God glorifies himself is by healing me. And then as time went on and the cancer got more aggressive, it turned to, I can't wait for the resurrection. And there's just something about the pain that brings that out in us. I remember the night, uh, two nights maybe before he died, I was sitting with my friend Rob at the edge of his bed. I don't know if he could hear what we were saying at that point, but we just sat with him for maybe an hour or two, and we just prayed and prayed and prayed. And there was, there was basically no hope at that point um, that he would survive. But I remember Rob and I talking, we were kind of praying, talking, praying, talking, and I remember thinking, maybe even saying, I've never wanted the resurrection more than I want it right now. I've never wanted to be just done with this life that's full of disease and decay and sickness and these awful things that we were never made for. You ever been to a funeral? Doesn't everything inside of you just want to say, this isn't right? This is not how it's supposed to be because it's not. We're not made for this, and yet sin entered the world. We live under this curse, and it's awful. But pain and struggle, it has a way of reminding us that our life is this, that there is this unbelievable joy waiting for us. Now look at what Paul does next. It's kind of shocking or interesting. In verses 18 and 19, he says, for as often as I've told you before and now tell you, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, that's interesting. And he goes right there. Their mind is set on earthly things. So he's trying to contrast, right? We who follow Jesus, we don't set our mind on earthly things. We set our mind on eternal things. And he drops this harsh truth right in the middle of this reflection on resurrection. Again, it makes me think of Aaron. When I met him in that conversation I had with him that day, he opened up to me. It's shocking, right? I don't take any credit for this. This is all God. I was just literally the kind of the reluctant person that God decided to use that day. I just sat with him, and then within 10, 15 minutes, he was telling me about all the ways that he was just living for the world, doing the kind of classic college kid thing. 
and he was skipping class, and he was failing his classes, and he was living to hook up with people, and he was partying. And then he, uh, this is just cool, just to encourage you guys. He, he had prayed that morning. He told me, I prayed this morning that if God were real, because he had grown up in a church, he, that God would make himself real to me. And now you're talking to me. And I'm not sure if that's it. And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> no, that's, I'm pretty sure that's it. Like, what are the odds, right? Um, some of us are doing the same thing. Our prize, the thing that we're straining after, the thing that we're sprinting after is our comfort, our happiness, our pleasure. When he says, you know, that, that their God is their stomach, that's an idiom that means basically you live for your own pleasure, and you'll get it however you can, however you can get it. Just live for your own pleasure. And some of us are doing the same thing. And Paul is saying, I am weeping. I take no joy in the fact that if we choose to live that way, the end of us is destruction. It's life without God for all of eternity. And he takes no pleasure in it. He is weeping with tears, it says, for them to avoid that path to turn, to repent, to be rescued by God, are we living for things that won't endure into eternity? Maybe today is the day that you turn to God. We end with verses 20 to 4, 1, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So he gives us this more specific vision. God will transform your lowly bodies to be like his glorious one. So we, many of us, probably have this view of the resurrection life. Somehow these bodies get transformed into like chubby angels that float around on clouds and shoot golden bows and arrows. Well, golden bow, oh, arrows with a bow. You guys get what I'm saying. Somehow we got this idea in our mind that we just float around in the clouds for all of eternity and we shoot people with arrows. Who did that? Michelangelo did that. It's his fault. Um, it's a lie. <laughs> it's not reality. What the scriptures teach us over and over again is that we will live in a resurrected body, a glorified body, like Jesus' body post-resurrection. It's a body. It has physicality, but it also has some cool superpowers. Remember, Jesus walked through doors without them being opened. It's, it's a physical body without disease, decay, death, none of that. It's eternal. It's without flaw. And we will live in a renewed earth. We won't float around on the clouds forever. We will walk on dirt in a renewed earth. It's physical, but it's glorified. It's, it's a sinless physicality. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. Love C.S. Lewis. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, notice lowercase g, 
a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? I want that. And I can get really comfortable with this life. I can get comfortable with the things that I want that. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get the Philippians to see. That the thing that's awaiting us is so unbelievably good that it makes anything that we're going through right now seem small. So that's our future. It should give us hope. And that's why Paul commands us here, press on, strain, strain yourselves, stand firm. It is hard, but there is something beyond glorious waiting for us. He says it beautifully in his letter to the Romans. He says in Romans 8, 22 and 23, that we're not alone in this struggle to, to endure, to press on, to, to stand firm. We're not alone in it. He says, we know, check this out, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about a resurrected body there. We're not alone in this struggle. In this, the groaning is like that's what it means for us to run after Jesus and to strain after him, even though we're broken, we're flawed, we struggle Painful things are happening to us. We are echoing the groaning of all of creation. Whenever I read the as in the pains of childbirth, I'm like, I'm just led right back to the delivery room with Tiffany. She's smiling because she knows the story I'm about to tell. It was our first kid. I never did it after this. But um, I didn't plan to do this. But when it got time to like do the pushing I wanted to be up by Tiffany's face. I didn't want to be anywhere else, okay? You can laugh at that. That's supposed to be funny. I wanted to stay really close to her face. Nowhere else. So, I didn't plan to do it, but as she was doing her, like, I was doing it with her, like, in unison, perfect, perfectly just as she was doing it. And she put up with it for a little while, and then at one point, she, between contractions, she looks up at me, and she's like, um could you please not breathe in my face as I'm pushing this child out of my body? Um, she was really kind about it. But we were like, I was groaning with her. I was breathing with her in unison. And anyway, that makes me think about what we experience is happening in unison with all of creation. And so Paul's sitting in a Roman prison. Um, he's writing to his friends who are facing persecution, and he's saying, Press on, stand firm, keep straining. See, we live between the groaning and the glory. That's where we sit in history, right? We're groaning for what is yet to come. We live in that space. And I want to end with this. It's actually not just creation that's groaning. It's not just creation and us that's groaning because Paul says just a couple of verses later, 
He says that the Spirit of God, who is God himself, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the Spirit groans with us. And that might be the most encouraging verse in the entire Bible, that we are never alone in our struggle. We are never alone in our failure, in our sickness, in our loss, in our sadness, and in all that stuff that makes us, that reminds us that life is not as it's supposed to be and that we are broken and flawed and sinful and we struggle, all of that, we are not alone. God himself groans with us. He is with you. He is whispering to you, reminding you that there is a prize yet to come, telling you that your citizenship is in heaven. And that doesn't mean that we just like sit around and wait for that. It means that, that that moves us to act in the now. Because Jesus prayed, right, to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those of us who know that this glory is coming, we don't just sit around and wait for it. We don't just sit and say, oh, this world's going to, you know where, I shouldn't say it, in church. And so we're just going to hang on. No, no, that's not what happens. We are, we, we're gripped by this vision of resurrection and we play a part. We're the first fruits of the Spirit. And we're motivated to bring that to earth. To see men and women's lives transformed by the gospel. To be about the work of making Bowling Green, Ohio a little bit more like heaven. And so what if our pain, our struggle, all that stuff, what if instead of it derailing our faith, what if it cultivated a deep hunger for resurrection life? For the time when we will see God and we will walk with him, there will be no sorrow. He will wipe away every tear. I pray that you press on, not in your own strength, but in his, because he is groaning with you. And his joy is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing truth that you are with us even, even in the groaning. Lord, I pray that for any of us in the room who are struggling, who are going through pain and hard things, would you grip our minds and our hearts with the vision of what is yet to come? Lord, would you give us the kind of hope that is unshakable? God, we cannot create that on our own. We can't manufacture that. We can only receive it from you. Lord, help us to think about, to meditate on the immeasurable glory that awaits us. Lord, would that not only give us strength to endure now, but would that motivate, motivate us to be about the work of your kingdom and your mission? And if there's any of us who are those who are living for earthly things, those for whom you say that the end is destruction, Lord, would we turn? Would we repent? Would we tell you that we need you? Would we feel your embrace, your forgiveness? We love you. We do all of this for you. In Jesus' name, amen.